Well, Micah, it's that point in the offseason where the transactions have gone through the roof, big names have already been moved, and we haven't even gotten to the free agency period yet. We're taping this on June 25. We're taping this also like many days away since the last time we talked. We're in that span. We had Porzingis go to the Celtics. We had the crazy Bradley Beal trade. And then to make things even more fun, Chris Paul gets traded about six hours before the NBA draft that happened on Thursday. Uh, It's good to have you on yet again. I'm very excited to be here. As you mentioned, some of the blockbuster deals that just made haste throughout the NBA and almost put in the rearview mirror the fact that one of the all-time greatest prospects is about to play his first game in the NBA. And we've heard a bunch of, I guess, up and down reactions to everything that Brandon Miller has either said or done <laughs> in the last few days. Is Paul George your goat, Micah? <laughs> I don't know. It it has a very Benedict Matherin feel to it, but I don't know. He is basically putting a target on his back, whether or not he wants it. But at this point, it's going to be on him to back it up. Just earlier today, he said, our goal for my rookie season is to be holding up the trophy at the end. And that's not their rookie of the year trophy. That's not a metaphorical trophy that you get for making the play in. That's I was going to say, it's, it's the new midseason play in tournament trophy. <laughs> And the yes. million dollars. <laughs> that's that's also not the summer league trophy. <laughs> so we have a lot to get to because, again, we have not taped in about a week and a half. And in that span, we had all the craziness. More importantly, we have the draft to get through, but then also these big time trades. So I think the way we want to break this down first is to do a simple winners and losers segment and for context. Uh, and that's based off the draft. And for context, we're also including the deals that happened, like the Porzingis trade, which was like, what, 30, 30 hours just before the draft, less than 24. CP3 was like eight hours before. The Beal trade was only a couple of days. So we want to incorporate that in there. But I think first, the one thing I want to ask you, since we're going to dive into the draft, is what was the big picture takeaway from draft night on Thursday? From draft night specifically, not including the trades, I think the biggest takeaway has to be just how many teams passed on Cam Whitmore. And the Houston Rockets, they wound up getting him at 20 when most people had him in their top 10. I had him in my top 12, but that is as ferociously explosive of an athlete as this year's draft had to offer. And the fact that he fell that far leads me to have a little bit of question when it comes to maybe the behind the scenes questions of whether his head's in the right space or whether there's a question of he can fit into an NBA system and his game translates at quite the same level that the Houston Rockets are now glad that they can expect. But the Houston Rockets actually look like a team that has essentially a bunch of side dishes that go well, go to well, go well together in a massive buffet of different options. And if they can just add the right entrees over the next few years, you'll have a legitimate five-course meal of what could be a decent team a few years from now. But Cam Whitmore falling that far was my biggest takeaway in terms of the winners right off the bat. I think the big thing for me is that was when you're watching the draft, that was the dominant story of just in terms of like looking at like where somebody was mocked versus where somebody was actually taken. Him dropping from top... It was easily top 10 status, but it was more like top six or seven status and falling to 20. And a bunch of teams with multiple picks or 
teams that could have taken a flyer didn't take the flyer. It ended up being Houston, who already actually used their pick earlier uh, for one of the Thompson twins, which is always fun. So I think my takeaway, it kind of ties into this. I don't, there wasn't as much movement during the draft. If you actually think about it, the only big time trade was the Dallas OKC move, which was basically the Davis Bertans salary dump. And then they, in exchange, got, you know, slightly worse draft positioning from 10 to 12, but then also were able to take on the Rashawn Holmes contract from Sacramento. And that was kind of a multifaceted and kind of busy night for Dallas. But I would say that it was a relatively normal draft from a transaction standpoint. And I think that actually made it probably better because we were actually able to focus on where guys were selected, kind of like focus. If we're going to give the winners and losers on this, it's going to mainly be on those draft choices during the draft, not anything else. Absolutely. And for Dallas's point of view, they also slot under the winners here because they moved back to picks. But Derek Lively, all reports turn to the idea that he's the player that they wanted initially anyway. And if you're able to move back, you get better value for the same guy. You now add a legitimate, decent front court player. Obviously, Rashawn Holmes was a borderline all star in Sacramento before they realized that he just wasn't the guy that fit the system. Playing alongside Luka Doncic, if you are a big that can set hard screens, roll the basket, and can make short roll playmaking to hit corner three-point shooters, you're going to have a great role to play in that kind of a system. And Derek Lively did a lot of that at Duke as well. So now you're essentially getting guys that fit the mold. And for a team that's basically looking at the potential Luka Doncic walking doom layer in about a year from now, Adding guys like this in a very expedited, we need to improve our roster right now fashion, that made a lot of sense for them. So I think it's time to get into the winners. And I want to start off actually with Dallas because they were the busiest team kind of this draft, I think more than anybody. The big thing that I really liked, I think what also stood out to me is that they didn't bite. I, I don't know if that how the, we don't know how the actual trade market was, but you, we can agree there was a lot of rumblings of, Dallas would for sure, if there's any pick in the lottery being traded, it would be number 10 because Dallas needed some win now, guys. What I liked about their strategy is they dumped poor salary in Bertanz's contract. They picked up a player who they needed because they needed more like kind of like uh, run, jump, dunk, big men who can pair with Luka, set a bunch of screens, be versatile defensively, what have you, but also still keep the 12th pick. So now if you think about it, this is assuming Kyrie's coming back because he still has to be resigned, but the market clearly is Kyrie, either Max or he's going somewhere for the MLE. It's a Kyrie Luka backcourt. And then you've got the Rashawn Holmes and then Derek Lively uh, center pairing. So really all you're doing is kind of just filling out a couple wing spots. And suddenly this team actually has, I think what they're looking for, which is more, they needed something that wasn't Christian Wood defensively. But I think they also just needed more guys. Like they just needed to find more people to eat up the in, uh, as they say, like the uh, innings eaters. They need to pick yep. up more minutes during the regular season, give them some more options. And I think they totally did that. Yes, they totally did that from a front court standpoint. Now they need to focus on a legitimate POA defender as well as corner three point maker, as well as probably a tertiary creator from the weak side. And that's something that they can look towards free agency for. They've already been a team that has been talked in the Cam Johnson and Grant Williams sweepstakes. I've heard rumblings of also a Jeremy Grant to Dallas, potentially if they wanted to spend a little bit more. And if they're going with a little bit less, I've also heard that Dylan Brooks would be willing to come off of the bench and take a smaller role now that he's been humbled from 
poking the bear one too many times. So all of those guys fit the mold for a team that honestly just needs mean guys in terms of toughening up other teams because they got beat up over the second half of the year. They traded for Kyrie Irving, but they also traded away their entire ability to slow down guys at point of attack. And they were dead last in rebounding rate after the Kyrie Irving trade. So it comes with a push-pull effect. They were amazing offensively, but they were horrendous defensively. If they're able to just improve to adequate on that end of the floor, that's one of the reasons why the Denver Nuggets were so good this season is because they had a level of unguardability on the offensive end the way that Dallas can be, only they got much better defensively, and that's what ultimately was able to raise their ceiling. That's essentially where Dallas comes into this year at, and little moves like that can basically put them into the backseat, I would say, to Denver in the Western Conference, but you're probably right back in that conversation for who is the biggest threat to Denver this coming season. I, I think, I, and like, I think to hammer home the point, what I, I, I kind of like, I kind of agree with, with their strategy. It wasn't to trade the 10th pick and gut whatever's left in the roster for a Pascal Siakam or a DeAndre Hunter, right? Like they wanted to keep their flexibility to still pursue people in free agency. Cause the other thing they can offer is playing time. Like you're offering playing time on a contender, especially if you're in the three, four spots, Yep. But they also didn't put all their chips in on a third guy because we know Kyrie is, you know, it's a chaotic mess all the time. So durability-wise, you can't count that in. A guy like Siakam, Hunter, they've also had, like, injury concerns. So in other words, you're putting more – basically, you're sacrificing a little bit of quality, but you're getting more quantity. And the quantity, honestly, is all you need, I think, is just to get more just legit surrounding talent that could play 15 to 20 minutes with or without Luka. You also need to be looking for a specific brand of basketball player, which is a high energy and high intensity player, because while Luca is going to dominate the game, you also need a guy to be a verbal leader, because that was one of the teams that really did not have any heart and soul when it came to looking for missing identity pieces this past season. They really have not had it much throughout his entire reign there. And Jalen Brunson was the guy until they let him walk. So they were able to fill in the secondary creator role with Kyrie Irving, which was an upgrade over Jalen Brunson, even though at this point, the players are probably about even in terms of market value. And now, yeah, as you mentioned, they are looking for guys to fill the three, four roles, especially in their starting lineup. And all the guys that I mentioned, Dylan Brooks, Jeremy Grant, Grant Williams, Cam Johnson, players of that sort that will be available are the guys that fit that mold. I don't think that they are probably in the market for somebody as potentially a, somebody who's going to be worth as much as Chris Middleton, especially considering they still need to figure out what this contract situation is going to be for Kyrie. But if they are looking for guys in that 15 to 22 million a year range, those are the kind of guys that are going to be good enough right now to play alongside Luca. And ultimately, even if they don't, win the title next year or even make the finals. Those are the kind of guys that will prove to him they can he can stay there and they can build a championship contender over the next few years. They're, so they're the first winner. I think the other one, I think just from a pure value perspective with their lottery picks is probably Houston, right? Because you get yeah, you you get a men Thompson who, if you were looking at the top four, he was always three or four, depending on who you talk to, depending on Scoop Mill or that debate. But he was a top four guy. And more likely, like, number four, exactly. So he was the best player available. But then with 20, 
they still got Cam Whitmore, who was the kind of the the nuclear reactor, if you will, of like kind of like teams just were terrified of him. Uh, and that's why his his draft stock slipped. But if you're Houston, you picked up two young guys. I think suddenly they become such a fascinating offseason because they still have boatloads of cap space. And now comes the ultimate question of number one is James Harden actually returning to Houston and at what price? And it seems like actually that's going to be less of an option, but it's still nothing's concrete until, you know, the fat lady sings. But the other question is if they're still going to come in with cap space, who are the veterans they are going to sign and for how long to mentor these guys? Because the one thing with Houston, they have so many guys at every position who are 19, 20, 21 years old, 22, that need playing time, but they also need a veteran who can come right away and be on the floor as much as possible. So they are essentially at right now where I think the Memphis Grizzlies were when they made the playoffs their very first season with Ja in his second year, and they still had Jaron Jackson and Desmond Bain and Dylan Brooks and a really young roster with Steven Adams as essentially the grandpa to it all. So I still think they are a couple of years away from adding in the Marcus Smart-like player to a team that needs a legitimate voice in the locker room that has has long playoff run success, maybe an NBA champion bringing in as a kind of a role player to be the glue to all the glitter that they have. But they really have just a ton of raw talent at this point. And I think until they have a couple of years to go through the grit and grind of NBA seasons together, each getting better by the day collectively, it doesn't make sense to spend that heavily right away. Because I don't think anybody's looking at this team as, wow, they are a top 20 player away from being a legit title contender at this point. Well, and you brought up the important, so the comparison to Memphis is interesting because in a situation I would say yes, but you also acknowledge my two big concerns, which is number one, they not only have a lot of talent that's raw, but they just have an abundance of it. And they kind of need to make some decisions with some contracts coming up of like who's staying and who's going. The real question is, do they have a franchise cornerstone? Because that goes into the Jalen Green conversation of, can he be that? And if it's not him, is it Jabari Smith, which I'm way more lower on than Green? And if it's not him, is it somebody like Amen Thompson? And I think that's the question for Houston. They don't really have that John Moran or even Zion Williamson of just a guy they can build a team around. They're still, I think, kind of figuring out what the identity is. Oh, they absolutely are. And that's one of the things that I think Jalen Green will need to get better at him personally in order for them to have a serious discussion probably two years from now, but maybe next season if they take considerable leaps and bounds to the point where they're saying, okay, we had a 41 season. We were knocking on the door. We made the play in, but we got our ass kicked. And now we're looking to find guys that can raise our ceiling rather quickly versus looking at more of a three to five year plan at this point, because you mentioned Jabari Smith. They also have Alperen Shengun is basically the light version to Demonis Sabonis, who is the light version to Nikola Jokic. They have Kevin Porter Jr., who I guess would be the guy who gets the short end of the stick if they were to bring in James Harden to play that role. But Kevin Porter Jr. also is just coming off of the best season of his career from an efficiency standpoint, as well as one of the things that he had problems with was taking bad shots over and over and over again and turning the ball over at a really high rate. He got better at those things this past season, and albeit they were not a team that was really in position to win many games, they've brought in Ime Udoka now to potentially be that voice 
from a coaching standpoint to get these guys playing better within themselves before they were to bring in outside talent. But I still think this is a work in progress and they are one, if not more likely two years away from having a legit discussion of who are the NBA champions that are looking to remove away on veteran minimum contracts. Who are the guys that we can give three years, 35 million to, to be our four guy they don't really have a legit hierarchy, and that's where Jalen Green needs to continue to get better, as does Alperin Shangun and Jabari Smith, before you can say, okay, those three guys, we're, bu- we're building around those guys, and then we just have to fill in the rest of the holes in the roster. They just have too many holes at this point for me to really have that discussion. But from a strict draft standpoint from a few days ago, they hit it out of the park. Yeah, that also makes the Harden thing so weird about a return because he just doesn't fit whatsoever with that. Like, the, the first off, from a team chemistry and development standpoint, I don't know if Ime Udoka and Harden are the best combo. I also don't know if, um, you know, when you have a, an unestablished culture, is James Harden really going to be the culture setter, <laughs> the, the veteran that will galvanize everything? So that just makes that really weird. I think one of my... Honestly, I think one of my winners, because it's such a weird situation, we actually talked about it last episode, and for Heat fans, nothing's changed, which makes everything more kind of depressing, but I think Portland getting Scoot Henderson no matter what is a easy win. Was it the obvious choice because Miller was taken by Charlotte? Absolutely, but... At the same time, you you still have outs, right? Because regardless of if you trade Dame or not, you're either going to have scooping mentored by Dame, and he's going to definitely get his playing time. And the, if you saw the interview on ESPN, it was amazing. Like, he has just all the right characteristics, but then also the basketball talent. If you trade Dame, if you're Portland, you still have this guy to build around. I think they, it, they were smart to not – if the option was to – take Scoot Henderson or trade back. I think they were wise to actually just take the best player available. Don't turn a dollar into a couple cents. And I think that that worked out for them regardless of what happens. Absolutely. I think that Scoot Henderson was a huge winner as with the Portland Trailblazers, but within their organization, if we're going to go ahead and transition to losers here, Damian Lillard is a loser. Yeah, totally. And I was talking to Colin, our friend about this a few days ago before the draft was there were really two avenues going forward from a pure draft standpoint, which is Dame gets moved on draft night or they stayed pat and they take the pick. Because Dame has made it clear verbally that he does not want to be a part of a youth movement as just the guy that's overseeing everything. He wants to go to a team that is ready to build a championship team right now because he understands that he can see the light at the end, at the end of the tunnel. He's going to be 33 this coming season, and while he has been money, who knows if he's going to be the same guy when he's 35. He needs to be competing for championships right now. And although he has made it very clear, and we've all tipped our cap to him that he wants to do that in Portland, Portland at this point is not in a position to do so because they just used the number three pick. Their other biggest assets for moving guys would have been Anthony Simons, but Anthony is probably going back to the bench this coming season if Dame is still on the floor because I don't see them running three guards and then I guess. Well, now now with Nurkic at center. (laughs) Yeah, especially not with Nurkic at center where they might not have Jeremy Grant either. They've said that they don't want to pay Jeremy Grant $30 million a year. 
And I'm not sure if there is a team out there that wants to pay Jeremy Grant that much, but Grant will hold out until he gets the best offer. And that's not going to come from Portland. So it's a really murky situation. I think it's deep down. I don't know if you want to call this a hot take or not. Deep down, I think that both sides think it's better if Damian Lillard is not on the team next year. Dame doesn't want to be the guy to step up and request a trade because it goes against his brand of staying loyal and being somebody who embraces the grind. He doesn't want people to say, oh, he ran from the grind or, oh, he was chasing rings. Well, I got news for you. Kevin Garnett chased rings. And as soon as he got to Boston, the only thing that he said that was negative was, I wish I had gone to Boston sooner. Yeah. At some point in Minnesota, there just came a time when it was the right time for him to go where Latrell Sprewell was just not a worthy number two guy. And whether or not CJ McCollum was that in Portland, only time will tell, I guess. Well, and that's a good comparison because that is actually probably the most historically accurate comparison we've had because in 04 Garnett and the Wolves make the conference finals against that Kobe Shaq last dance Lakers team and they yep. lose in six. They don't make the playoffs the next three years. I think they're they're all below 500 too. It wasn't even like it was a stacked like one through eight in the Western Conference. Like they just outright missed the playoffs. Portland in 2000 was a 19, right? They made the Western 19, Conference they finals. They made the, the conference finals. They had a double-digit lead in three out of the four games, two of them in the second half. Without Kevin Durant in half that series. I'm pretty sure all that series. In the entire series. That was the series when people, when I guess Curry reminded people who he really was, even though he didn't really need to do that. People yeah, knew it was. it's a secret uh, marquee, marquee game. It was like game three, I think. They're down... 18 or 19 and Curry has like 40 something and that, that went to overtime too I remember it went definitely went to overtime it was it was a good game it was a great game yeah it was back in Portland for the first game and you're like oh Portland's about to go up 2-1 and they're going to win convincingly here then who knows game four always becomes huge at home game four is historically a game where the team that is down 1-2 has some kind of alien like amazing performance from their superstar Dame and CJ foil the same way that Garnett at some point realized that Minnesota was not going to be the right place for him. So just to harken back to the Portland side of this, they've, they've not been, they've keep, they've peaked as a team bottom line. That's essentially the bottom line. And they have been a team that has now embraced. Okay. We have this looming guy that is still amazing. And if he comes back this year, he's going to be back in conversation for third team, all NBA most likely. And he's going to be really good again, but is that really best for what we are trying to build here where maybe it's just best for us to not be a 35 to 40 win team that that's our legitimate ceiling. Maybe we just be bad for the next two to three years. We give Scoot as many reps as possible because that's probably what's best for him before the guy even turns 22. And then they build some other guys through the draft. Whereas Damian Lillard, doesn't want to be there during then. So at some point, the Portland Trailblazers, as well as Damian Lillard's agent, need to step up and speak for him and say, let's find the right team. Let's make this move now. And that way, both sides can walk away saying, we did what we were supposed to. Damian Lillard doesn't have to be somebody who went on the record and said, I need to be traded right now. And the Portland Trailblazers don't need to be a team that says, We had a great run, but we have to make this deal now. It just needs to be something that 
as a basketball fan, I want to see. I went through this as a Jazz fan last year. I was like, okay, the end of the Mitchell and Rudy era, we could probably stretch it out for another two seasons, but I don't think that it's going to be any better than if we were to take a completely different turn. They made a Mitchell move, and in return, they got Lowry Markkanen, Ocha Baji, and Colin Sexton, and five picks. Yep. You don't think that the Portland Trailblazers can get something like that right now? And that's they better don't. than other situations, too, because I dealt with this in Miami 2016. Uh, actually, honestly, you can probably go to 2014, where after we make the finals, LeBron leaves. And it's this team kind of at an influx where they just don't have the flexibility to make a move, but they're still trotting out. Bosch dealt with the blood clot, so that's different. But remember, Miami missed the playoffs and then won 48 games and made it to Game 7 versus Toronto in that 2016 series. And even though we didn't get any value out of it, Miami smartly – chose to not pay a 34-year-old Dwayne Wade $30 million, $25 million multi-year contract because they knew they couldn't win any more with Wade as the best player. And if you're a franchise, you kind of have to sort of pick that. That's why I actually really liked, and we're going to do the Bill conversation later, but a team like Washington, where even though they didn't necessarily get the best value, at a certain point, you have to just kind of cut the cord and kind of rip the Band-Aid off before it turns into a bigger wound. So Portland, the, the latest reporting that came out that I saw was that basically Dame is going to wait until free agency and hope this team add, adds veterans. But then this kind of sounds like a worser version of the Golden State two-track timeline where you're going to try to contend with Dame, but then still have Shaden Sharp, Anthony Simons, and Scoot Henderson with Dame all on the same roster and no legitimate three and no legitimate five. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of a... You, we just saw this live out with Golden State where they were still good, but they couldn't find that level. And Portland's nowhere near that level compared to Golden State. No. Portland at that time, or I guess now, is not in the position where Golden State was of competing for championships while still having to deal with what the three- to five-year future looks like. Because A, Stephen Curry is an all-time great and Damian Lillard is not. And B, the entire rest of the rosters with the Warriors, as well as their front office, was fully intact. And they had the same team that they won 73 games with and they won a title with before Kevin Durant. And they had Andrew Wiggins, who, by the way, if Andrew Wiggins were on the Blazers right now, he would be the second best player. Yeah, I uh, For the next loser, if we wanted to do another loser, I'll go with the easiest uh kind of in terms of like looking at the draft picks themselves, I did not understand Orlando's situation at all because I we would have been on the side of like, if you can get a guy like Scoot Henderson or Brandon Miller, I think you would be willing to trade six and 11 for, and even something else to get Scoot because or even Miller. Because if you think about it, this team is a younger team that has two established guys in Franz Wagner and Paulo Bancaro, who we've talked about plenty of times before. And you're trying to fill it around the margins and you could have drafted a third guy instead. They kind of took, instead of taking the guaranteed on paper A guy, they kind of went with taking two B minus to B guys. And I think that was a poor decision. I agree. I guess moving to another loser here. I don't know if Michael Jordan is going to be around for that much longer, but passing on Scoot Henderson is not something that I think is going to age well in Charlotte. Not to mention, I mean, Brandon Miller is going to run his mouth a lot, but Brandon Miller is also the kind of player that makes it to the NBA and then realizes that, wow, the players here are way, way better than anything that I've ever played against. And I'm still not that great of a rim finisher. And to be 6'9 and not have that level of 
I'm able to punish smaller defenders and play against switching schemes. It's going to be a rough sledding for him for a couple of years. I also think from Charlotte's point of view, there were these questions about whether or not LaMelo would fit alongside I'm blank, alongside Scoot Henderson. I actually think that fit would make a lot of sense. That yeah. would have been like if Anthony Edwards and LaMelo Ball would have both been able to be drafted to the same team. It works better for both of them to learn in their younger years how to play without the basketball. LaMelo is a good enough shooter, especially off of the catch, in order to play without the basketball as a initial and tertiary and secondary creator in the backcourt. You also have legitimate better wings, and that's not a team that really still has the cap space in order to make things go right now. So I guess from a Portland standpoint, they probably would have been better off with Brandon Miller because that's a little legitimate wing that makes more sense alongside Dame. And Charlotte, I think they just butchered the pick, to be honest. Oh, yeah, no, because the other thing too – um. This has been, by the way, the odds makers for this were having a field day with like going back and forth of who is the favorite. But <laughs> like my my thing is that I never want to just say the, the question Charles has to ask himself is that is LaMelo Ball such a good of a player mm-hmm. that you're willing to say we would rather do fit around LaMelo rather than best player available? That's why not to switch topics. I actually like a team like Detroit's draft with taking a sar thompson because he has the he had the highest upside of any of the guys left and instead of trading down and taking you know two more surefire guys but you know they're lottery picks so it's like a kind of a swing and miss toward the bottom there they went with kind of youngest and highest potential because they just know that with Monty on the mega year the mega contract and Cade and ivy still developing they're not going to be in a rush to jolt all the way to the playing tournament unless they just kind of like unleash and go above any expectations right but charlotte they're kind of drafting as if like they're a playing team that just needs a couple guys to make the playoffs and i I think that's a with new management charge will be interesting but it was such a weird thing to hear like we have new management they're going to be running our team but michael jordan will still be in charge of the draft uh when draft day comes it was a weird thing i also think that scoot henderson would have been a better winner having gone to Charlotte, where you're not potentially playing alongside Dame, where Dame is just going to get on you the moment that you have any kind of a failure. Whereas in Charlotte, you have lower expectations, which is probably what he needs right now in order to go through the struggles of the ages 19, 20, and 21 seasons in the NBA, which historically, before you're age 22, you're probably not in the NBA Finals. LeBron took the Cavs to the Finals at 22 Shaq took the Magic to the finals at 22. Hakeem was in the finals really young, but he also came to the league older with Ralph Sampson. Like, guys, it takes you a little bit of time in order to get there. And unless you're Kobe falling into the Shaq part of the conversation, it ultimately does not happen very quickly. And to be honest, I think that I think that Scoot would have loved playing alongside LaMelo, and I also think it would have been better for LaMelo because both would have been able to learn how to play off the ball and off of each other. And that way you have a legitimate backcourt to then have the beginning of the recipe for a future title contender where you have to build out the rest of the ingredients versus just a bunch of different ingredients that don't really go together. Like it's Gordon Ramsay's like Iron Chef or something. 
these were the biggest draft narratives, but we do need to hit on some of the trades that happened before the draft that kind of just like shook the NBA and took the NBA world by storm. So I have one of my winners, which is kind of a take, but I don't know. Maybe I don't know if it's the strong of a take. I, I have Washington as a winner, honestly, because a lot of people have been saying like, oh, like you're only getting pick swaps in the return. And oh, you're only getting at the time it was Chris Paul and it turned into other stuff. But if you look at the entire, we can put these two together. If you look at the entire picture, Washington got off of the Bradley Beal four-year, $200 million deal. So that's gone. They were able to trade Porzingis. And instead of doing the bird rights trap and kind of paying him a bigger contract, just ship him off, right? So even though they're not getting the best value, they at least are shedding salary and picking a direction. What saved them from kind of like a blot uh, pairing of deals to a clear winner for me was the CP trade. You turned a guy who could have been waived and you instead the thing with Jordan Poole being bad money, quote unquote, is that he's he just kicked in like that extension. So there's a clear reclamation project there, especially in Washington, where he's gonna have all the touches in the world. And you're able to still get a, a pretty juicy first round pick from Golden State in 2030 when this Curry, Clay, and Draymond era is completely over. I just like what they did. They sold high, sold pretty high while they could on their top guys before they had to either recommit to them or have to sign them to new contracts but i actually think they got some good value and they picked a direction so washington for me is a clear winner and that begs the question of we have to look at this from the phoenix angle of what were your thoughts on the bradley beal trade and is this actually going to be a good fit or not and was it the right decision so from phoenix's standpoint the pieces don't fit and i'm not sure if they're done making moves there was a report that dropped earlier today from gerald bourgeois who's one of the top insiders for the sun saying that they are planning to keep DeAndre Ayton and their big four, which might be the best big four in the league, depending on how you look at it. Fit-wise, it doesn't really work, but when you have that level of talent, ultimately, if the guys can stay healthy, it probably will translate to a lot of wins. But I just wanted to backtrack, backtrack really quickly. How much better is Bradley Beal than Jordan Poole at this point? Like, is the gap really that much? If I mean, Poole's, young, Poole's, Poole's younger, so... Beal's I think younger, Beal, and he's going to get the same amount of touches that Beal has had the last few years. Not to mention, don't forget that Tyus Jones is now in Washington, who's been the best backup point guard in the league for the last four seasons. So on top of all of that, Tyus Jones is now going to become the starting point guard with Jordan Poole also in the backcourt. And yeah, they're not going to be a good team, but in order to move off of the contract from Beal, which might have been the clear favorite for worst contract in the entire NBA to go to the Jordan Poole deal where you're not going to have to worry about re-signing the guy for any time in the foreseeable future. That made a lot of sense for them, especially now maybe Washington decided to tank one year too late after the Victor Wembanyama draft. But all in all, that was something that they probably needed to do and credit to the Washington Wizards front office for finally pulling the plug. Now to Phoenix. They still need to fill out a couple of different parts of their roster. And in order for them to feel championship worthy, two things need to happen. I think that Devin Booker needs to become the full-time point guard. For the time during the playoffs when they didn't have CP, he took over that role and he was brilliant as a lead playmaker, as an initial ball handler. And he's a as good of a pull-up shooter as there is in the entire league. However, this team struggles to create enough from the perimeter when it comes to finishing plays and making open threes. So they need to add a legitimate wing. 
and they need to just add more shooting on the floor because whatever they had in Durant and Booker, they added the third type of the exact same player, which is a a lot of volume of difficult pull-up twos, which if you can continue to make them at the clip that they made them in the postseason with Durant and Booker, yeah, you're going to be able to win a lot of games and have an amazing offensive team, but you better make them at that clip because the moment that you don't and you run into a team that's more physical, like Denver, you're going to have a lot of problems. So they're essentially at the same problem that they were when they made the Durant deal, which was they fleeced all of their assets and their flexibility in order to be really good right now. So are we looking at this team as championship or bust? Isn't that what we looked at the Brooklyn Nets as? So I, I actually uh, totally so yes, and here's why. So I have I have a, a very center of the road take on the B- Bradley Beal acquisition for Phoenix, and here it is because I I list, I've thought about it. We've had a week to 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 reflect on it. My thing is, I think for Phoenix, I think it was given what their circumstance was, it was a good move, right? Because you needed to bring in somebody. I think basically they had sw- they swapped Chris Paul for Bradley Beal, and Bradley Beal as the third guy in your team as an offensive creator is awesome to have, right? Like, t- yeah. like if you think about it, also the criticism of like, oh, he's only shot in thirty three percent from three the last like, couple of years. He's been doing that as the lead guy, but if he's the third scorer, he's going to get more open looks with Durant and Booker, and he also gives you insurance if Durant gets hurt or they need to load manage him and Booker. You just have that extra guy. So the, each of the three kind of can share the offensive role. The, the The problem I will say with that is that you don't want a situation like last year where the team just enters the playoffs with no chemistry whatsoever and it just completely falls apart. So for Phoenix, I love it. I also think, again, Beal as the third guy, given that they basically had no outs outside of trading Aiden, instead of waving Paul, they turned him into a player to help win right now. And they only gave up pick swaps and second rounders. That isn't the biggest deal in the world. So that's my pro Phoenix case, but my case against Phoenix, it's not necessarily their fault with the Beal trade. It's their fault with the Kevin Durant trade going all in and giving up uh, Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson and all of those first rounders. There's Crowder who, by the way, Crowder would be a starter for this team right now. Yeah, exactly. So the reason why I bring that up is that um, I think Phoenix is sacrificing and they know that their title window is basically the next three years. Because once you hit 2026, I think, or 27, Booker needs a new deal. Beal needs a new deal. Durant would be 30 in the mid, like mid to high 30s now, age wise. He'll be 38 then. He's coming up on his age 35 season. And luxury tax with that, the second apron going to be down the road. They're going to have to shed salary at some point. And they will rightfully do that. But they're accepting that between 2027, let's call it, and 2030 and onward, there's going to be some hurting years because they won't necessarily have the rights to their pick and they might not be able to draft the best player available at a, you know, top five, top seven position because they've sacrificed for now. But honestly, I actually want to do a story on this for the lead about teams that they're, I'll call it doomsday is coming in the next half decade. And it's teams like the Clippers and like Phoenix, where you just take the risks now in the short term and you hope that you can extend your title window to three, four, five years acknowledging that you're going to be hurt in the back half of that once that era is over. So when the second apron kicks in, 
yes, everything is going to change when it comes to the landscape of creating big threes. And now I think you can say the Phoenix Suns have the only big three in the NBA currently. And is it still a team that right now is positioned to beat Denver? Because I still look at them and I still think they have no answer for a Murray and Jokic two-man game. They're still not as physical in the front court in order to deal with Aaron Gordon. And DeAndre Ayton is still somebody who is going to be fouling out by midway through the game. There are more questions defensively than there are answers offensively with the team. And with the Denver Nuggets almost being a shoe-in to be a top three offense every single year, I mean, they just came off of a postseason run where the only team in NBA history that had a better offensive rating was the 1987 Lakers. Mm -hmm. A team that had the best version of Magic and still had Worthy at his prime and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in his later years. So that's the kind of level that the Denver Nuggets were operating at offensively. And I still think they have another level that they can get to because Jamal Murray probably has an entire season of playing at that level in him. And Michael Porter Jr. is going to be able to get better as a tertiary ball handler and weak side creator. So let me ask you this. Truly championship robust the first season these guys are together or just throughout the entirety of having that as their big three? I, I think, I honestly think this first season, because I think they're, in my opinion, I think the, the second probably highest favorite outside of Denver to win the title in the West, right? Because you think about it, the Lakers are still uncertain with how free agency plays out. We need to see Golden State back at a level and with Draymond officially committed, Yep. There's teams like Memphis and Minnesota that kind of are just not there yet or there's stuff going on. I think at least the other thing you have to consider, and the reason why I'm saying I think it's a championship or bust now, is that you've, you've committed all of these resources to the Beal, Booker, KD trio, right? And to an extent, Aiden, by signing him to the huge deal. As you get older and as the years progress, the likelihood that I think they're going to win goes down once Kevin Durant is approaching that mid to late 30s mark where he's going to be 36, 37, 38. So that's, that's why I, I'm so adamant about them winning because I think as you keep hoping, you're just going to turn into the LA Clippers where it's always like the best team on paper that can ultimately never do it. And I think that's why I think a big loser here, we're both the NBA history nerds, we love this stuff, is Kevin Durant. Because you see all the crap on Twitter of, well, how many quote-unquote superstars does Durant need? This Phoenix thing would be so interesting because ever since this Golden State tenure, we've we've had the conversation on the pod before of just the chaos in Brooklyn, yet at the same time, how close they were to, they were a, an inch away from beating Milwaukee and potentially winning the NBA Finals, which I think they could have done. And then in this year, that they have the be, they have arguably the best trio of talent on paper, but it's any it's so uncertain to actually see if that will turn into a title or not. It's so uncertain to turn into a title. And when we're ranking title runs, will we even think that Kevin Durant at that point will have had one where we go, wow, Kevin Durant was the best player in the league that year at any point. The only one you have is the conference semis against Milwaukee, but it's a conference semis. You know what I mean? Like the, the conference semis. It's also, yeah, like you mentioned, it's the conference semis. The guy has not been in the conference finals since he was in Golden State. And can you really say that right now he's a better player than he was then? He's probably, I mean, do you think he's one of the five best players in the league right now? Because I don't. The five guys that I have ahead of him are Jokic, Giannis, Curry, Embiid, and Luka. I think with the injury concerns, I think you have to 
drop him off to more like this the eight nine range probably. Okay, so you're taking Tatum over him right now. I would take probably Embiid and Tatum, but yeah. I think they'd be in the same tier. Like I think you can make a case Durant is six, but there's a clear top five now. Yeah, I agree. So that's essentially where you are at with Durant. And then you can also say, are we at the point in his career where we're de- delegitimizing if he were to get a third title? Because then you could look at, oh wow, would Bradley Beal start to enter Hall of Fame discussion if? he wins a title with the Suns, and then we're looking at oh durant never won a title with fewer than two hall of fame teammates on his team that's something and and we're not we're not necessarily arguing that by the way but we are saying like that is what the average nba pundit will say because it's true right like it's always everyone's going to refer back to the golden state thing he needs something else that could prove like hey i actually even if it was just making a finals in the west especially like that'd be kind of nuts as a as He'd be making the finals in, in the West, not separate from the OKC tenure and contrasting from the Golden State tenure, which I think matters. We we should, by the way, do you have anything else to add on that? Oh, absolutely. And then I'm looking at potentially how the West could play out next year. I don't think that Sacramento is done making moves. In fact, I think that Sacramento has a ton of money. They opened up they 30 million. Here it now. comes. Chris Middleton would make so much sense. And I really he might, don't. He might, he might get it if uh, Milwaukee uh, kind of screws this up. <laughs> if Milwaukee, yeah, screws that up. I also could see if they wanted to go pure defense, how would Draymond Green look in the purple? It's Especially a good, if, it's a really good fit. It's the fit makes a lot of sense. I'm not sure in terms of him stepping on Demontis Sabonis, if he could stomach the fact that he might be going there and donning the purple would make a whole lot of sense, but. That front court would be lethal. They would have a bunch of different playmakers. They would have essentially a team that needs Keegan Murray to make the next step. And then you're probably looking at a title contender right away. But that's really a team that needs just another 20-point scorer, which Chris Middleton would be the answer right away. And he would be a legitimate, I guess, old man voice that they need the same way that Marcus Smart, in theory, will be to the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, I, Sacramento was also on my list of winners. Just the cap flexibility to basically say we're going to add another player to know that we can keep this going is pretty impressive. So I think just because we're, we're short on time, we want to hit on them. Let's, since we briefly touched on it, we should probably hit on the Chris Paul trade. And yeah. I'm going to say this that I personally actually liked it for Golden State because as we saw with the Bradley Beal deal, it's not as excruciating or nuclear. But if you can get off, quote, bad money, for a minimal cost, I think it was a good move for by they needed to trade Jordan Poole to resolve what happened last year. And they didn't give up, I think, sufficient value for that. The question I think comes is what is Chris Paul's role for this team, right? You can't play. It's it's really fascinating because he's always been more of a pick and roll guy. We haven't really seen him off the ball since the Houston days. And that was kind of a weird fit toward the end, right? And the question is how will he fit with a guy like Steph Curry, who has the magnet, his magnitude and this warrior system. Well, the fit is a huge question because has Chris Paul gotten to the point in his career where he will accept the fact that he is going to come off the bench and be their backup point. Guard? Is this, is this late stage Gary Payton? Cause I remember like, remember like, especially those yeah. days, it turned out bad. And then with that Miami team in 06, it turned out really good when he played off the bench. I mean, Russell Westbrook this past year, the best version of himself really in two seasons has been coming off the bench for the Lakers when it actually made a whole lot of sense. And it's tough for point guards who 
are probably one of the five best ever, like Chris Paul at his position. I mean, you're talking about Magic, Steph, Oscar, Isaiah, and then probably CP3 if you wanted to make the case for a kid or a Nash or a Stockton. That also makes a lot of sense. But for a guy that's basically that good at his position, it's tough. Carmelo Anthony couldn't accept it, and that's one of the reasons why he's not in the league anymore. And I guess it makes a lot of sense for him to come off the bench. The other thing that I'm thinking about is Chris Paul has basically been the older little brother to Steph Curry ever since Steph became God. And it's going to be really weird for them to look at each other as teammates. I'm sure that they're going to laugh about it. But just from a basketball watching standpoint, these are guys that have just butted heads throughout the entirety of their careers. And you've probably seen the viral clip by now of Draymond Green saying he doesn't like CP. He respects his game, but he doesn't want to be teammates with him. Yep. It's it's a deal that came out a couple of years ago, but now that the guy is technically his teammate, assuming that he re-signs, oh man, they got to work through a lot of that stuff. And they had to make the move because I think ultimately last season was doomed from the moment that Draymond Green's knuckle hit Jordan Poole. But at this point, I think it makes sense for CP to come off of the bench, and I think it makes sense for the Steph, Clay, and Draymond trio to still be in the starting lineup alongside Andrew Wiggins and probably Kevon Looney, the same starting five that they have had that the last couple of years, the same starting five that they won the title with in 2022. And then you basically have CP as your sixth man to go along with some of the youth movement movement that they have alongside these guys it, it could work by the way just if cp3 takes a bench role having him be the adult with all those younger guys actually might be it's better than having pool or having like clay even right because at least like he's an initiator and not somebody who relies on off ball action to get his shots up yep and also it adds a certain element of offense that they really have not had which is mid-range scoring yeah or just a, even like a pick and roll threat because they're more of like the even Steph Curry, he's not really like a pick and roll ISO guy. It's more of like a in the flow of the offense in the half court. Yes. The first guy that they've really had since then was Kevin Durant, where he is the only guy that makes sense where you don't consider it to be bad offense if he were to go ISO because he's one of the best isolation scorers ever. Whereas Chris Paul, I think running sort of a Spain pick and roll, where essentially you have Draymond set the screen. CP with the ball and Curry working off the ball with Wiggins as the back cutter, Kevon Looney as the back screener. I'm just thinking about all of the different ways you have supremely high-level basketball minds working on the same team. It's one of those things where the fit doesn't really make sense until you think about it, and then you go, okay, you have a bunch of guys who have played for forever, know how to win in the NBA at the highest level, albeit CP is not an NBA champion at this point. This, he's probably looking at this as giddy as possible because he used to look at Steph Curry as his mercenary, and now he can say he's his teammate. Yeah, so I know you want to do the Wemby expectations talk, but we I, we do need to talk about the Celtics moving yes. on from Marcus Smart, man. Like, that is – I think that was the most shocking trade probably so far more than the Beal deal because it's, it, it's an era – Marcus Smart was the first draft pick of this new – the post KG Pierce era and it turned into Jalen Brown and Isaiah Thomas and Al Horford and the memories that have been from the past, what, since pretty much decade, almost, almost, he would play nine years there. 
So it, it's yeah. been a decade. It, the pinnacle of that era was watching Jason Tatum miss layups in the NBA Finals, and then watching him sprain his ankle in the very first play of. Or that that game that game uh, seven versus LeBron, followed by that awful 2019 season with Kyrie. Can't forget Kyrie in the conversation. But the reason why I think it's a big deal is that. I think Boston realized that they needed to do something after two shortfalls in a row in the postseason because they clearly have the upside with Tatum and Brown. I think it's very smart that they're keeping Brown because they know they can work with him if he's the second best guy. The crazy thing is I think that with the Porzingis acquisition, first off, they got value in return, by the way, getting some picks from Memphis now, which is I don't know how that was possible. Porzingis' trade value is so weird because he actually played really well last year. I think it was his best year since his like Knicks tenure. And yet he had to pick up his, his player option because no team would accept him. Uh, at least like he couldn't get a commitment for a longer deal. But then to bring this new dimension that's insurance for Al Horford and Rob Williams, give Boston a different look that isn't small ball, was a fascinating and honestly pretty amazing acquisition. I think they're probably one of the bigger, if not the biggest winner, given the value and given what they needed. They are the biggest winner. And even if you were to throw away the two first round picks they got in return, they are still the biggest winner because this is a legitimate player that solves their front court scoring issue, as well as the fact that they are now really one point guard away from being the best team in the league and the not necessarily prohibitive title favorites, but the clear-cut favorites to at least represent the East. Well, it's like what we said about them last year, where they they but it's different because of Porzingis. They have the same scheme versatility, but they have a different dimension to them. And you solve the issue again of with Al Horford being 38 at some point next year and Rob Williams' injuries, you you get another guy who can play the four, play the five. He doesn't um killed the team's offense because he's a really good three-point shooter off the ball like we saw in many stints across his time it's a really good value move and I think smart I think they the other thing too I think people are overlooking I think they want Tatum and Brown to be the culture setter it was so weird having Marcus Smart be the guy because he was the ultimate team player but you we know the the legacy of like the the frustrating like what are you doing three-pointer and the drive to the rim in traffic at the worst possible time. I still remember that blown layup against Miami that led to the Butler miss three, but it was that crazy. Like, why do you go with 14 seconds left? <laughs> like it, it kind of like all com- uh, combined together in that uh, conference final series this past year with Miami, where he had his moments, but then the bad moments just destroyed this team entirely. The bad moments are certainly what people are going to remember, especially Boston Celtics fans, because they've been, I guess, so used to winning and they're honestly spoiled in that regard that now they have to look at this trade and actually stomach the fact that Marcus Smart, their heart and soul is not on the team next year. And now the pressure is as sky high as possible because they have been installed as the co-favorites to win the title with Denver next year at a lot of different sports books. And honestly, that's the way that they should be thought of because Jason Tatum in theory is going to get better as a playmaker and they are going to have probably, I guess, Malcolm Brogdon as their starting point guard. And Derek White is also going to be in there. So essentially their starting lineup is going to be White, Brogdon, Brown, Tatum, and Porzingis. So you have a ton of scoring, enough playmaking in theory. Or you can even go more ridiculous and play Derek White, Jalen Brown, Tatum, Horford, and Porzingis, or even Porzingis and Rod Williams. You get weird there. I think, 
there you probably get into kind of an issue because I don't think you want Jason Tatum being your lead initiator. Yeah, what about Jason- what about Jalen Brown? As long as he doesn't dribble left, it's okay. <laughs> as long as he doesn't dribble, it's okay. He is going to be a guy who takes the tertiary backseat role to back cut and occasionally you back somebody down if they happen to be the size of Gabe Vincent. But besides that, stay in your lane, back cut, set a lot of hard screens, and be a good defensive player, and you'll make your $300 million. However, the one downside for the Boston Celtics, as I mentioned, is they are still out of a point guard at this point. I thought when I was here in the trade that they were going to get from Memphis, I thought the guy they were getting in return was Tyus Jones. But instead, they were able to make the make sure the KP trade goes through the two first round picks. They have J.D. Davison, who they took in the draft next year, who is expected to play a larger role this coming season. The other thing that I don't think people have probably remembered about this is. I guess they still have Peyton Pritchard, but Danilo Gallinari, his tenure as a Boston Celtic, of which it never actually began, is over at this point. So. They've gutted their entire roster. It looks like Grant Williams is not coming back. They are going to be a team that now embraces the, we have five or six guys that we love, and that's really all we need in order to run it up and down the court. The Denver model. As long as they stay healthy, the same way that you can say about Phoenix, which is a huge knock on wood because KP this past season played 65 games to his credit, but it was the first time he'd played 65 games since he was in New York. And it's unlikely that they're able able to replicate that level of health and conditioning. If they do, they should be the team that represents the Eastern Conference and potentially wins it all because Jason Tatum is going to get better. And Kristaps Porzingis is now in probably the best role of his career where he is not actually asked to do a whole lot besides the things that he's good at, which is make the pick and pop three, punish somebody who is seven inches shorter than him in the post, and make lobs that basically you have some of the best pick-and-roll ball handlers in the league doing, which is Malcolm Brogdon and Jason Tatum. So the fit is perfect, and if Boston Celtics fans realize that Marcus Smart is no longer on the team, they should warm up to the idea as well. All right, so because this is a draft pod, we do have to do the Wemby conversation, and we're over time, so we won't spend too much time, but we should set some ground rules of how do we think – and what do we think is a realistic expectation for Wemby's rookie year? Because there's clearly a lot of hype. And I think you had asked the question, but I'll, I'll let you go first on this one is, is Victor Wembanyama, at least in our lifetime, truly the best prospect out there? The best prospect in my lifetime? No. The best prospect since LeBron? Yes. LeBron James high school games were nationally televised on ESPN. I have watched a couple of them fully. If I had been old enough to watch them live, then I would have made some of that my scheduled programming. The guy was just an absolute freak. And while I have some watched some of the Mets 92, I don't consider them to be nearly as iconic of a guy. He's also going to be walking into the league at 19 versus 18 as one of the youngest guys ever in the league. However, from the way that it looks in NBA history, the best first round draft or best first overall picks of the last 25 years call it you're looking at lebron duncan shack ai 
Anthony Davis, players of that caliber. Anthony Davis, Anthony Davis's career is probably the bare minimum for Wemby, where I still think you're going to probably consider him to be a disappointment given how high the stakes are for his career. But it would be considered a bust if his career is anything below that, which is probably what he's going to walk into with the league right now. A defensive number one that can anchor one of the best defenses in the league and an offensive number two where you need probably a guard that is better than him at this point on that end of the floor in order to have legitimate championship caliber aspirations. But from a strict year one expectations, I expect him to be in the all-star game first guy since Zion to have made the all-star team as a rookie. And that's something that Shaq also did. Duncan was first team all NBA, his rookie season. Still crazy, by the way. (laughs) Still amazing. But that was also a rookie that had David Robinson still with a couple of great years left in his career. So that was almost an outlier, but Wemby, I expect him to be an all-star and Is it not too much to ask that he could potentially be third team all NBA as the center outside of Jokic and Embiid? If he can hit the 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 game marker with the new CBA, it's probably he could probably I forget, is he gonna be classified as a four or five? I don't think that that designation has been made at this point. Oh, I forget. Wait, they dropped the uh, they dropped the positions on the new all NBA. So they dropped the positions, although I still think a lot of voters will still make the rosters for all NBA as like, what could be a playable roster if I were to throw these five guys out there? So I'm not going to have a roster that's Jokic, Embiid, Giannis, Tatum, and then like LeBron or something as just five massive dudes, but you're not really sure how it works. Yeah. Cause I would say like, if he was qualified as a center, it's actually probably harder because you're looking at Embiid and Jokic are going to be in the, in the top two clearly. And then you have this weird group of like, Sabonis or Bam, somebody like that will probably make it. But the forward spot is interesting because, I mean, we had conversations at one point like two years ago about is Andrew Wiggins going to make this thing and Miles Bridges. So like with the with the injuries to Kawhi, PG, Jimmy Butler, even if if Wemby plays, it, it's highly plausible he can make a third team. I think that ultimately will he will be classified as a stretch four, which I know that that's a position that doesn't really exist anymore the way that Dirk was the original guy and Chris Mullen I guess he's a smaller guy but essentially a player of that caliber so right out of the shoot could he be considered better than Anthony Davis by the end of his rookie season potentially because I think ultimately I have now accepted the fact that Anthony Davis is a center which he was considered that this past season, and he's played center for the Lakers since they shedded Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee when they won the title. So I don't think that he will ultimately make All-NBA if those three guys being Jokic, Embiid, and Anthony Davis stay healthy. Yeah. But outside of those guys, you are talking about the echelon of where Wemby should be at the end of his rookie season, if not the end of his second year in the league. I'd say individually, like if I had to do like a quick spark notes, I think if Wemby is in the clearly an all-star and I think his defensive floor, like you mentioned, will be the biggest thing. If the Spurs can improve from worst defense in NBA history to middle of the pack, I think that's a really good adjustment. And it is very early because we still have to do free agency and figure out what is the pieces San Antonio will put around Wemby. 
I think it's very reasonable to expect that San Antonio will be moderately decent next year. Are we talking like a 45 win first round exit? Absolutely not. <laughs> Do I think they can win 30 to 38 games and be on the fringes of 500? I think that's a realistic expectation. I also think that free agency is going to be a, a benefit for them because they're going to be a team that is going to be looking to add a legitimate playmaker as a lead guard and potentially if they wanted to pay somebody to become their starting point guard, like a Bruce Brown, for example, who is going to want money, but not he's not going to garner that much. Gabe Vincent also is a guy to look at because if the Spurs think that Wemby is this good right away, is there anything stopping them from being buyers immediately to try to find that guard that goes well with all their other pieces like Keldon Johnson, Devin Vassell, Jeremy Sohan, et cetera. And they also have a bunch of picks from the Jante Murray and Yaga Pirtle deals. They have all the cap space this year. So like maybe it's a case of they let things play out in year one, but then when you get to the next summer, it turns into, we have something, this guy, it would be like the Luka Doncic effect where like you see the year two progress and you're like, okay, we got to, make a move. But I remember I wrote a piece on this about a week ago. This is like an O-dub, but San Antonio, because I know we know them as a franchise, are going to be extremely cautious with jumping the gun on a move. Like, they're not going to do the Dallas-Porzingis trade like that happened in the middle of the season. They're going to find the actual right... They're going to take their time to figure out who Wemby is, what the ceiling is, and who are the players to maximize that ceiling. So let's look at the all-time greatest players from each position. And I just want to go down the list of how far down the list can we rank Wemby in terms of, okay, this guy met his expectations, was a disappointment, was a bust, and then exceeded expectations. And then you get to GOAT conversation, which I think, does he have to be in the GOAT conversation to you in order to have exceeded expectations? I'd say I'd say for me, exceeding expectations would be better than what you said, which is Anthony Davis. Like if he turns into even a guy like Giannis, where he can win multiple MVPs and be a defensive anchor, but still carry some offense, I think is a pretty that's a top 40 to top 35 career immediately. Even title oh, without question. That would be more top 20, 25, 20. To me, I'm more of a punitive guy because I know how the prospects were talked about before the draft. Like even Zion had massive, massive hype going into the NBA. If the guy can't stay healthy, I'm probably going to consider him a bust, even though I know how good he was, which is essentially a six, six shack every time he actually played. Yeah. And he could be a bust on the sense of we wanted to see this and just never saw it. Even if it was like an unfair bust, we could still label him as it's a disappointment. If it happens, okay. let's go down the list here in terms of centers. Let's let's go through centers and power forwards. And then we'll say how far down the list he has to be considered better than in order to have met expectations and then exceeded expectations. Right. So let's start with centers. Kareem, Russell, Wilt, Shaq, Hakeem. Does he have to be at least as good as Hakeem in order to meet expectations? No, I, th I think not. OK, Moses and Jokic. No. Okay, so if he's at least as good as the David Robinson, even, DeWalt, even like Patrick Ewing, Ewing, at least like just like what if San Antonio just is for fifteen years a forty-five to fifty win team that makes a couple conference finals and he sneaks into the NBA finals one year? Like that's still given his seven foot six stature and the amount of guys like Ralph Sampson and Yao Ming that just flamed down and can never be that is still pretty pretty cool. Okay, moving on to power forwards, Duncan, Dirk, Giannis. 
No, I think he doesn't need to hit that. Malone, Garnett, and Bob Pettit, or Charles Barkley. Um, maybe maybe Barkley. Wouldn't it be like Anthony Davis in the sense of like clear top five to ten player at most of his career? Barkley's more of an offensive guy and less of a defensive guy, but the idea that he's an awesome number one that ultimately couldn't win a title, but if he's your clear number two, you're absolutely separate life if that's on offense at least. Oh, unquestionably. And that's where I think the Anthony Davis comparison makes a lot of sense where he's probably, I mean, at this point, Victor is probably not your best number one offensively in order to be a title contender. But within the next couple of years, you might be looking at him as, this guy is perennially going to be talked about for the defensive player of the year. And offensively, he looks like he's a top five to 10 player on that end. And if you have, or excuse me, top 10 to 15 offensive player like Anthony Davis, but if you have a better offensive player, he's your offense two and your defense one, then you're golden. Totally agree. So since we're, since we have to wrap up, cause we're definitely a little over, if you had to do, since we're not going to record it, we want to see how free agency plays out and then kind of like reflect on some of these deals. Give us your biggest free agency prediction. We have one week out officially. My biggest free agency prediction, I'll make it more of a hot take. Okay. That I think is going to happen. I wouldn't be shocked if Chris Middleton actually is the answer for the Miami Heat. <laughs> yes it's, this would be this would be a move that the miami heat would jump out immediately because it would be ripping away a player that the teams that they are going to have to go against which is milwaukee ripping away one of their best players and adding it to their team immediately and he's also the exact kind of player that they need to add they don't necessarily need to stretch the floor from a guard position they've they know that damian lillard is a way better player but they also know that that's a deal that is going to significantly gut the rest of their roster as well as draft picks into the foreseeable future. Whereas if they wanted to pay a guy 35 million over three, or excuse me, three years for a hundred million dollars or so, Chris Middleton would be a legitimate answer right now. And then I'm probably thinking of them given heat culture as a guy that fits that role, really tough shot maker late in games, underrated playmaker out of pick and roll, would elevate Bam's offensive ceiling, makes a ton of sense, and I'm probably thinking about them as the Eastern Conference title favorite, at least co-favorites with Boston at that point where Milwaukee would have to take a step back. You have Miami fans jumping for joy with that take. We we are manifesting it strongly. Well, Micah, obviously we're taping this on June 25, and we're going to be definitely talking at some point once we hear some of the crazy once we get past the first trenches, that is free agency, the first opening days of that moratorium. But we'll have the latest coming up soon. It's good to have you on yet again. Absolutely. Always my pleasure.